0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is the president of the Boston Teachers Union, Jessica Tang. As BTU's president, she represents 10,000 active and retired educators. She is the first person of color, first openly bisexual LGBTQ leader, and first woman in over 30 years to serve as president. Jessica began working in Boston Public Schools as a college student volunteer tutor at the Mather Elementary School in 2000. She then began her teaching career as a student teacher at the McCormick Middle School in Boston Public Schools. She is a co-founder of the Teacher Activist Group in Boston and serves as a board member for several civic and labor groups, including Citizens for Public Schools and the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. She also serves as the vice president of both the Massachusetts AFL, CIO, and the American Federation of Teachers for Massachusetts. Today, we're going to talk with Jessica Tang about the Boston Teachers Union, Boston Public Schools, COVID-19, and Boston's back-to-school plans. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So it's great to meet you. You and I have actually never met. I've, of course, heard a lot about you and about your work, and it's such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Um, for the sake of myself and for you know the audience, can you just talk with us first a, a little bit about how you got here? So, how did you start your career? Um, and, and you know, kind of what what led you to
1: become the head of the Boston Teachers Union? Sure. So, if you had asked me ten years ago, twenty years ago, if I was going to become the president of the Boston Teachers Union, first of all, I might say, what are unions again? Or <laughs> truthfully. And uh, the, so my path was not something I intended to do at all. Um, I was an undergrad at Harvard. I did a tutoring program all four years at the Mather School. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really started to fall in love with students and teaching and education and young people. Uh, I definitely come from more of like a social justice um, activist framework and was studying sociology originally and really did want to go into a profession where I could help promote social justice, really. Mm-hmm. And and that's really expanded to include racial justice and economic justice explicitly. Yeah. Uh, but it was tutoring at the Mather School, which then led me to the undergraduate teacher education program. Um, and then I... Did my student teaching at the McCormick uh, while I was finishing my senior year of college, and uh, then went on to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and taught at the Gavin Middle School before teaching at the Young Achievers Kate 8 Pilot School. So and, all of these schools are part of
0: Boston public schools.
1: Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And um, yeah, so you know when I first started teaching, I would ask myself, you know, like why do I not have desks? That aren't covered in graffiti, and um, you know my blackboard was covered with I didn't even know what, but I couldn't really use chalk on it very well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when I first started teaching, I was putting up my own whiteboards. Um, I had a friend come and help clean out the room, and we you know fix shelves, put put um, handles on missing drawers. Um, I mean, yeah, these are stories that that many teachers tell
0: about needing to (laughs) order their own supplies, all classrooms never being entirely clean. Yeah
1: exactly and right. and and I didn't have enough books for all my students um, my class size limit was supposed to be 28 um, by my third year teaching I had classes that were 30 32 31 mm-hmm. um, I was that because the school was very popular I don't know that it was because the school is popular or it, it we were getting actually and this is like a separate conversation but we were getting a lot of students that were getting kicked out of the charter school down the street Ah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, which is how I actually started learning about charter schools because I was like, "Why do I keep getting these students?" Um, you know, mid year, etc. Uh-huh. Um, and we didn't have you know enough books. I had 30 books for over 90 kids, and so I started really just trying to figure out, you know, what what is going on here. Uh, meanwhile, I had gotten in touch with um, you know we look for like minded community, so the Teachers for Social Justice group um, through a conference, mm-hmm. a social justice educators conference and the New Coalition of Coalition Radical Educators. And they're part of a national teacher activist group network. Mm-hmm. And so some friends and I, you know, started one in Boston, it's TAG Boston. It still exists today. And we put the social justice, uh, for education or education for social justice, I'm sorry, conference every year. Um, except this year, actually, sadly. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I was reading the, uh, I was reading the platform and in the platform, one of the points was specifically the right to collectively bargain and, uh, support of unions. And so I was like, okay, well, if I'm, I'm for social justice, I guess I'm for unions too. And so I started going to union meetings and that is where I found a community of educators who are like, oh, these are the folks who are coming together to fight for what we need in our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, I think we've grown a lot uh, since I first started becoming involved and when I ran for building rep um, in my third year of teaching um, and started going to those meetings, but I definitely saw it as a place where teachers came together to have a voice and where professionalism and uh, advocacy were absolutely necessary to the teaching and learning conditions that we needed to be successful.
0: And a building rep, just for everyone, is a building rep is a representative of the teachers' union that represents that school.
1: Yes, that's correct. And it's a it's a democratic... Unions were very democratic, so you have to run and get elected into those positions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do, the, do those elections just happen every year? Yep, every year. Yeah. And, th- and it was interesting to me,
0: so your comment that you tied social justice to unions. T- I was gonna get into this later, but can you talk to me a little bit more about that because I mean I'm certainly for social d- justice. I-, I quite honestly don't completely understand the purpose of unions in modern society. And so could you talk to me a little bit about why you think unions are important
1: to even today? Sure. I mean, very simply, it's a way for workers to come together and have a voice. Uh, because, and you know, we see this all the time in other industries as well. If one worker speaks up, then oftentimes, you know, they can just get fired. They have no rights. Um, and it is unions. I had to learn a lot of this, actually, you know, that are the reason why we have, you know, um, work, work days that have limits and that you have required lunch breaks and that, uh, you know, for teachers... We, when they unionized, they were fighting for things like just a lunch, a duty-free lunch break. Uh Um, Things like having a desk in the room. Um, You know, we couldn't wear pants as women teachers. (laughs) I mean, these are the things I think society and history has forgotten. Uh, You know, child labor laws came from unions. Um, So many worker protections that are in place today that help counterbalance kind of the, um, I could call it capitalistic drive to just, you know, there's a common phrase of people over profit. Um, you know, we're really there to advocate and, uh, you know, going back to the farm workers and Cesar Chavez and just, it's about coming together and having a voice and being able to protect each other when we're not being treated right. I gotcha. And then, so then
0: if we, okay, wait, you were building Rep and then in that process, you sort of got very interested in being a part of the union to the degree that you just, you kind of worked your way through that and ended up being elected president. Is that? Yes, I'm sorry. I kind of, I stopped the story. Huh? Well, I asked you a separate question about unions, which I had planned to do later. So, but I was just curious.
1: Yeah. So I I was a building rep and then um, some folks encouraged me to run for executive board. I was very young at that time. I was only 28 Okay. For, I, I don't even know if I was twenty eight yet, um, and I didn't actually expect to win. But um, I, I was also vocal at union meetings, so I went up to the mic often and and oh. asked questions. And I was always very nervous because it's in front of hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, but I guess with support from others. Um, I, I was elected as an executive board member and I ran very much on a platform that it wasn't enough for teachers to be advocating uh, by ourselves that we needed to intentionally uh, work with our, our our closest allies and that is students and parents mm-hmm. um, and community, allies who care deeply about public education and getting it right. Yeah. And so I helped to create the community advisory board, which then actually later grew into the Boston education justice Alliance. Um, and now is the mass education justice Alliance too. And we have little student parent uh, teacher coalitions across the state. Uh, but cause I very, very strongly believe that we have much more in common than apart. And if we're working together and advocating together, we can win things like the student opportunities act mm-hmm. uh, where we fought so hard Um you know, coming off of the two thousand and sixteen ballot question, to say, "Hey, it's not enough just to say no." to The charter ballot question. We actually need resources and funding um, to actually get everything we need for our students.
0: Right. So that so that's interesting. So part of your platform is that it we're not we're the Boston Teacher Union is not just here to represent teachers, but it's here to represent students and families.
1: Yeah, and that there, you know our interests are not um, uh, in opposition. I, I think that there is oftentimes a, tr- a intentional, um, drive to, to separate and divide teachers from parents or students when in fact, you know, the students' learning conditions are the teachers' working conditions yeah. and our parents are our greatest partners and most yeah. important partners. Yeah. That, 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 makes sense. And in,
0: um, so then, so then to kind of move forward to, to today's conversation, which is around like, so we're what, couple of weeks away a few weeks away from um what would be the start of school and then some things have transpired so the commissioner has now given an extra 10 days that's not 10 days for the city of boston because boston was planning on starting later than other schools um but there's there's some wiggle room that the commissioner has granted schools in terms of starting later mm-hmm. and um you, you, the Boston Teachers Union has put out uh, a proposal for how it thinks um, schools should be reopened, and um, so can we can we talk about this and and talk about um, your reactions to what the city put out the hopscotch plan? Um, Absolutely. Maybe maybe we start there. So as as you know, I pay deep attention to school committee meetings, and so. I, I've read everything I can read about the um, hopscotch plan and um, where the city may currently sit in terms of how it thinks schools should be reopened, although I don't have a great read on whether or not it actually thinks that the schools should open their doors. But I I think I have a, a good read on if they opened their doors, how school would be run. and And so I'm curious about before we talk about whether or not they should even open their doors, what's your point of view on what you know this hopscotch model where half the kids are school at school one day and the other half are at home but everyone's being taught at the same time and then there's a switch and somewhere in there is time for deep cleaning as well. What, what do you think?
1: I don't mean to sound harsh but it is literally one of the worst hybrid plans in the whole state. Um, I think there is a world in which hybrid could work Uh, if there are assurances of safety and health. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, we've read – I mean, this is all we've been doing for months now is, like, reading, trying to get up to date on health and safety protocols. You know, what are the the best practices, um, what's best for students developmentally and social, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. And uh, this is not easy whatsoever. If it were easy, I think that we wouldn't all be struggling across the nation right now.
0: Well, and can we agree on the fact that, like,
1: even – Pre COVID, we weren't doing it very that's well right. at all. Okay, that's right. That's that's absolutely right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that's why we've been so frustrated with the hopscotch plan is that you know since March actually. Um, we've been saying, hey, you know, let's talk about how to get remote learning better. And, you know, to be fair, the district did then agree to focus groups where Mm -hmm. we talked to different educators, you know, what's working, what's not working, what support do you need? Um, And we we even broke it down with, you know, EL students, special education students talking Mm -hmm. about social emotional health. Um, But the frustration, I guess, is that a lot of the learning from those focus groups was not reflected whatsoever in that hopscotch plan. And in fact, it had aspects of the plan that were exactly the opposite of what people said, which was that, you know, remote learning is totally different than in-person learning when it's done well yeah. and when it was most successful and that it can't be simultaneous. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, so take,
0: take me through like, how is it just get, you, know, you were a teacher. So, and I've been trying to envision this as well. How, how does, um, how does that work? How, how, how does, how, how does BPS want that to work where you have, I mean, you have big classes as you mentioned and you right. have half the kids at school and half the kids, Maybe if they dial in um, right. to uh, on, on online, and you're right. supposed to teach them all for a certain amount of hours per right. the contracts. So how how do um, how do you think about that?
1: Well, that that's exactly those are exactly the questions that we've had <laughs> too. And you know, again, to be fair, uh, the district did eventually. You know, we we qu- we were quite displeased with having been left out of the whole plan and yeah. only seeing it the day before um, they released that school committee. And I had said then, when initially when I heard the plan and saw the presentation, I'm like, "This is not good enough. Uh, we need something better." Um, but um, we asked those same questions, and we, but again, to their credit, they, we did have a demonstration, and to their credit, they did invite uh, teachers from the reopening task force that we had advocated for and fought really hard to have, um, you know, post uh, this plan and we saw a demonstration and they got the idea from parochial schools that i've been doing something like this um, but i think the difference though is our class sizes are significantly higher than the parochial schools yeah. um and even in that demonstration we really struggled so this, yeah. these were you know a class of your very best students who are adults and technologically savvy and you know you need three devices, essentially, it, it was still very confusing. And and it, and I guess the big challenge to us is, you know, we are very concerned about our highest needs students. And the pedagogy that's needed to reach a lot of those students can't be replicated in the same way, trying to teach simultaneously and remotely at the same time, because we are way beyond just having a teacher standing at the front of a classroom and giving a lecture. Right. That's right. Tell so Explain what you mean by that. So we, you know, in the workshop model, you demonstrate a lesson is, you know, I do, you do, we do together. Um, There's a lot of pairing. There's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of small group work. There's a lot of hands-on project-based learning. Um, There's stations, especially for the early grades. And that model might work best for, you know, high school students. Uh, But even then, again, one of the biggest challenges we heard about was just engaging students to get online at all. Yeah. Right. And if all they're getting, you know, it, it works for some students. And, and surprisingly, some students actually did better in remote than they did in person, which yeah. was an interesting, consistent, anecdotal story we heard. Yeah, um, Ones who wouldn't talk in class were felt much more free to actually to chat and, and to participate online. Um, but it didn't work for a lot of students because we have to figure out engagement in a different way motivation. That's right. Um, it's a completely different paradigm. Right,
0: right, yeah. right. Which I think is the point of your plan. So, so you you responded. The BTU responded with this plan. And maybe, can you talk a little bit about how this plan was developed? And you know, what what were kind of the
1: guiding principles of this plan? Sure. Um, so our plan actually begins with an introduction and in guiding principles. Oh, <laughs> so actually, okay. okay, it does. Through but those. I didn't
0: mean. Yes. Okay. Go
1: ahead. Um, so I didn't know if you actually meant our spe- our, our specific ones, no, but you I mean. Know them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to get into specifics too, but um, we, you know, from the focus groups in the spring, uh, we actually even had a plan for the summer learning, and we had what we called these "whatever it takes" teams that we had proposed to the district, mm-hmm. and they ended up doing their own thing. Um, but we were very concerned because we knew that there was learning loss in the spring; we knew there'd yeah. be further learning loss in the summer, yeah. and we really wanted to figure out how do we best make the most. Of the time that we have, so that we're better prepared. Because in the spring, everyone was had a huge, steep learning curve and was trying to figure out how to do something they've never done before overnight.
0: Mm, um,
1: right. Yeah, not just the technology, but the pedagogy and instruction too.
0: Right, it, teaching teaching online is very different than teaching in person. Exactly. It's like it's like you can't you can't emphasize that enough because it's just it's a completely different world to be I, in a virtual yes, world. So
1: appreciate that you appreciate that because. Yeah. I don't know that everyone realizes just how different it is, yeah. um, and, I, and I'm not to say it's not doable. It just it's just completely different. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And and our goal was how do we do it better. Right. Uh, because we knew that there was likely going to, even the spring, we knew there was likely to be a second surge, that it could actually be a lot worse because it's going to coincide with flu season. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were worried about the reopening phases and, you, you know, we are watching all of this stuff like 24 yeah. seven and what's happening in other countries, et cetera. Right. Um, and so we were very concerned. So we we're like, okay, you know, what we need to do is we need to start with getting remote learning better first and figure out for the students where remote learning clearly was not working. What do we do for those students? And so we did listening tours, um, and, uh, before the school year was even out and we would ask everyone, you know, like what's working well. And actually it was, we were supposed to actually begin this listening tour because we were supposed to be starting, um, preparations for our next, um, master contract because our, our usual, um, MOU with the, the, the city actually expires next year. And so we were getting ahead of the game and Ah, preparing, and then we had to pivot and be like, you know what, actually we need to hear about remote learning right now because this is an unprecedented situation. So we asked, you know, what's working and what's not with remote learning, you know, what supports do you need? Um, what are your best ideas to make this better? And we did listening tours with our members, um, school by school. We had focus groups. We had then, um, uh, we had an application process for a collective bargaining committee, making sure it was representative of everyone from substitutes to paraprofessionals, teachers, physical therapists, nurses, all the different members we represent. Mm-hmm. And it was a long process. You know, Democracy takes longer, but I truly believe you have a better product in the end because our folks were thinking about everything. Um, and that's the level of detail I think that you need for a thoughtful plan. Yes. Yeah.
0: And so this is but a – But did co- your plan have input from um- – like, were you able to go find some of the 10,000 kids who never showed up and ask their families, where were you? What, yeah. What yeah. Uh,
1: you know, we had we had teachers going above and beyond in the spring, literally, yeah. you know, going to people's homes to check on them and doing wellness checks when they hadn't heard from a student for several days. Yeah. Um, and it really varied. Some some were just like, I'm too overwhelmed and yeah. I, I'm all set and I, you know, I need to just focus on getting through day to day right now. Yeah. Um, some of them were working, you know and people families were definitely losing jobs and still are and were wor- more worried about rent um, and where they're going to live. Um, and some folks just made a conscious decision that the anxiety and stress of remote learning in the spring wasn't worth uh, what they they missed participating.
0: okay yeah. but the, yeah. but this is this is a the huge there's probably huge gaps now because because of those things.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. And that's why we were we offered to come together and come up with a summer learning plan. Like we our plan that we had proposed was, you know, that schools identify the highest need students that remote learning didn't work for them over the summer right. and that they should be eligible and targeted for summer extension. Um, and I know BPS did, again, to their credit, expand the extended school year a lot more than they ever have in the past. Um, but we always are trying to give ideas and be a partner in sharing our our experience and professionals. Expertise,
0: yeah. Did so, they? Um, how how do you think? How do you think summer the summer program went overall?
1: Given um, there
0: probably were very high expectations for it. Given the yeah, learning, it, loss. it
1: varied. It varied program to program. Okay. Um, so there were certainly, I think, a lot of lessons learned in terms of platforms, in terms of. Um, technology. Uh, there are also frustrations that we need to be aware of for the fall. So, you know, summer schools four weeks, and um, you know, some students when their computers broke down, they didn't get a new one for another two weeks. Right? Well, you know, that's that's got to be. We got to do better than that. Um, and you know, now that's not to say that the district didn't do a good job of the Herculean task of distributing over 30,000 Chromebooks. And we partnered with them to do that. And we had our volunteer core, we had hundreds of people in our volunteer core helped coordinate with the district and OIT to do that. Um, So I'd like to give credit where credit's due, but there were certainly a lot of challenges still. And um, we wish we could have been able to pilot more of our ideas for the fall during that time.
0: Yeah. That's what I was curious about because you know, March is when we all got shut down. You know, in April, May, June, I think people, like you said, were swirling, trying to figure out this new technology. We couldn't find kids. We couldn't find families. Um, it was it was a bit of a mess. Um, but but it 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 doesn't strike me that we did our best as adults to figure out how we were going to tackle this situation come the fall, or that given the paradigm of COVID-19 and everything that's different now that there should even have been a break, you know, like, like that, that we just decide that these, that these, that these times are still the right times because we did it last year when all things were entirely different. Um, and so, so I wonder how you think about that because if I'm a second grader, I'm probably somewhere in the process of learning how to read. Mm-hmm. And, and and I might be in a very different place if I didn't show up for school last year. Mm-hmm. How how is a teacher going to serve me mm-hmm. if I'm in the same classroom, and especially if I'm if I'm virtual? And I noticed your plan calls for a number of support specialists and paraprofessionals, and uh, you know, so there's a bunch of additional people in here. Yeah. Um, but and is that is that what you're countering in making that proposal, or how, how do we think about meeting kids where they are today and figuring out how to get them all back.
1: Right. Well, the good news yeah. is that is actually, you know, what we do on a day-to-day base, basis anyway as, as educators, right, is we always have some students who are advanced, some who are on grade level, quote unquote, um, and those who are behind. And so yeah. we are constantly, I mean, that's that's literally what we do, right, is, is, is help catch up students to make sure that they're learning and meeting, um, you know, standards or learning objectives and goals, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so we've always had to differentiate in order to make sure everyone's getting what they need. Right, uh, And so our proposal is very much based on this idea of, okay, well, now we need to do it remotely somehow. And also in a way in which potentially we can phase in hybrid instruction and not the hopscotch simultaneous teaching hybrid, but a hybrid that will be more effective at um, helping our students who are who are falling behind or need extra attention can get it um, and that we can pivot between platforms. So we can't, for example, well, we could, but I think it'd be disastrous, have certain platforms remote and then different platforms for um, hybrid or in-person mm-hmm. And then every time you switch back and forth, you have to switch different platforms like that, that, that would be a terrible idea. What we learned is that it took a while for everyone to get used to the platforms in the first place.
0: Yeah. Right. Um,
1: whether it be Seesaw, for early education or Google classroom or zoom or a combination of that and many other applications that teachers experimented with and used um, and found successful or not. Right. Right. So, so our, our, our plan is very much also based in this phased-in approach idea that if you try to tackle everything all at once without, you know, uh, piloting some things first, and and number one, ensuring safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do, I do want to talk about that because I think there's this, like, idea, oh, teachers don't want to go back to the, the buildings. And you're right. Teachers don't feel comfortable going back to our buildings because these are the same buildings that, you know, two contracts ago we had to fight for warm water, soap. And paper towels in all of our bathrooms. Yeah, and even as of last year, we're still fighting to actually have that fulfilled. Yeah, I um, can attest
0: to. I mean, I go in and out of schools all the time to check on the My Way cafes, and it's it's very rare that I find.
1: Right. So, so you have paper to towels for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you can understand why there's yeah, yeah. a lot of reservation about going back into our buildings. Oh yeah. Um, because just because people say, "Oh, the buildings are fixed," that we don't actually trust that or believe that. Uh, Until we see the evidence of it. And it would be different if all of our school buildings were like, you know, the Brigham or, you know, community health centers that actually have AC and air ventilation, don't have mice running across our classrooms, which real life does happen, even in the middle of instruction. Um, It's just a totally different expectation. Yeah, We don't think it's safe right now.
0: Yeah, and you and and is that is that part of another negotiation that's going on? Is is how clean do we need to keep schools? Because I feel like cleanliness of schools varies by school pretty greatly. Absolutely,
1: I mean, and it's and it's a result of decades of deferred maintenance. You know, again, that's why we fought so hard for the Student Opportunities Act and ensuring that we have more funding. And we've been fighting, you know, for facilities upgrades. And I just don't think the general public realized just how. Um, dilapidated and substandard, uh, our buildings were, and you know we make the best of it. But I'm not the only teacher who put up my own whiteboards or you know painted walls yeah. or you know power sanded the graffiti off the desks and repainted them and shellacked them so they look like they're new.
0: Right. No, I know it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what, what teachers do. It's, it's absolutely amazing what teachers do. The so here here's a question for you though, because I mean there's always this discussion of increased funding and and you know we can we can talk about this in detail but there's a lot of asks in the btu proposal about yeah. um, more 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 yes. and i mean we how how much more is it in terms of real dollars and my worry is like you st- you can hand over any dollar and it can be spent in very different ways and and so the efficacy of spending those dollars is mm-hmm. something that's not as clear to me yeah. In any time, quite honestly, I look at budgets that have to do with Boston public schools um, or schools kind of in general. But I do feel like that's critically important here, right? Like we have a $1.2 billion budget, I think, or maybe $1.4. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah a little um, bit over a billion, yes. Yeah. But, but, but really, I mean, the efficacy of how we spend those dollars and that yeah. there's been no conversation about shifting how we spend yeah. those dollars, I, I think is a big problem. Do, do you yeah. think so?
1: Uh, No, I I do. And and I want to say, too, that, you know, we are in this position because of a massive failure from the federal government. You know, the fact that they haven't passed the Heroes Act yet um, is holding up schools from being able to do the upgrades that should have happened before the pandemic even hit mm-hmm. in our school buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, and that's why the SOA was passed too, you know, cause if you look at from 1993, the Ed Reform Act and the amount of money that districts get from the state, particularly in Boston, it's decreased. I think it's like, it used to be like 30%, closer to 30%. Now it's about less than 10% yeah. from the state. Um, and so the city has had to do a lot to pick up the gaps. And so we don't think the city can do it alone. You know, we are lucky that Boston has a healthy reserve and, you know, uh, I do know the mayor and the city hall are working so hard to ensure that we continue to be, you know, in a much better position than a lot of other cities and districts in the state, truthfully. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, But we do need money from the state government and we definitely need money from the federal government in order to ensure the safety and standards that should have been in place, truthfully, before the pandemic even hit
0: yeah yeah exactly. I agree with that but I think there's there's also things that just need to be deeply rethought because school school whenever we start that that's gonna look very different or should oh, yeah. look very different exactly. right if we're if like if our goals are to make sure kids are at or stay on grade level, especially around things like reading and math which are very progressive right like you can't miss and yeah. then come back around and be where everybody else is and so yeah. like right and then I would imagine our second set of goals or maybe, equally as important is to make sure that, that our kids are physically and mentally and socially well, Yes, that like, right. So those goals, those goals, given the, um, what the pandemic has created for us in terms of environment, it it feels like we've got a set of assets that we're really misusing right now, or where we're thinking about misusing if, if all we do is go hopscotch. And and so I I'm wondering, like, what, what do you think? I mean, if you could just paint the scenario, maybe that's what this, proposal is of what the right, what what school should look like starting this fall for Boston public school kids. What, what, is, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, so very quickly, like, you know, the guiding principles are definitely that we need the funding to be able to do this right. Safety first, you know, we can't risk people's lives. And that's what makes me so upset is that it didn't have to be like this um, in which we're in a scenario where there's no good solution because there's always going to be some risk right now. Yeah. Um, but we need to do everything we can according to uh, best public health science, uh, recommendations. Um, you know, we've got to be focused on the social, racial and economic justice piece because we know that the, the pandemic has disproportionately hit our black and brown, um, and communities of color. And, um, even and just on that,
0: we don't. I mean, do we have? Do we get reports on um, what the rates look like by district in within the city,
1: or do we just have an the Absolutely, East Boston, for example, is has very high rates, similar to Lynn and Lawrence. Um, you know, it and, and the thing is too. It it, it this where we're dealing with like really triple di- um pandemics at the same time, right? We've yeah. got the health uh, COVID pandemic we've got a reckoning on racial justice Um, at the same time, our Asian American students have been facing discrimination and harassment and feeling unsafe for quite a long time. I think it's gone a little better, but it's certainly when this pandemic first hit and the president trying to blame China. And then all of a sudden, you know, Asian people became targets in America. Um, Then we also have that economic crisis. right? Right. And so there's, but, but that's, I think a frustration too, is that it's like, Schools are expected to solve all these societal problems, mm. um, and if we're going to do that, then we need—we do need more funding because we're not just teaching kids. And I think people have realized that during this pandemic that we do a lot more than just academic instruction. Um, so, I, I think that's exactly—I to- completely agree with that.
0: Um, a, but there's probably oh, some reallocation of funding that can happen too.
1: Oh, oh, for sure. And, and yeah. I do think we need to always keep in mind, educators—we're always thinking about. Um, ec- um, sorry equity, but also these concepts of like Maslow before blooms. So equity also means that we have to ensure that some of our families don't have the basic needs. So I'm not sure, maybe I'm getting a little too technical, but this idea that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs means that before students can actually learn, you know, they have to have their physiological Physiological needs met. So that means, you know, shelter, love. Exactly. Yep. Yep, You've got it. And safety, security Mm -hmm. is next. Love and belonging then comes next. And if you have all those three things, then you have self esteem and recognition and freedom. And then after that, you have self actualization, right? right? Um, And that's when students are most ready to learn. And then you move to Bloom's taxonomy, which is where, you know, the basic, um, uh, concept of just remembering recall facts and basic ideas. And then the next level is not just recalling, but understanding. And then after understanding is applying after applying is analyzing, evaluating, and then creating is creating original or new work is, is, you know, the ultimate goal. Yeah. Um. And so in, in preparing for a reopening plan during a pandemic and crisis, you've got to put Maslow before bloom. Yeah.
0: Or, or um, for some, maybe for some, I mean, would you ever think about segmenting the city in that way? That there are there are students where we are not meeting their most basic needs, and that is for that set of students we worry about that more, and we figure out a plan for learning loss later. Yes, but for others we yes. can engage in, yes, in
1: the learning can happen because they're supported. Those basic human needs are supported. Yes. Exactly. We have to differentiate our approach. And so that's why we've said, you know, equity is based on needs, not uniformity. Not Mm -hmm. everyone's going to need the same thing across the district right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we've also said we need a team approach uh, because if we're going to be consistent across the district, and I think that was one of the you know, challenges from the spring is that there was a lot of inconsistency because everyone, it was like the wild old west. Everyone was just trying to figure everything out on their own. Um, uh, But if we want to have more consistency and coherency across the district. We we also need to have team approaches and there's a lot of benefits to a team approach that we've really been advocating for uh, because if someone does get sick, you know, it's hard to rebuild a relationship with with someone you've never met before. So we're right. saying, you know, put teams of teachers together who are grade or content level um, specific and and have substitutes who are assigned to school communities. So, to, so students are learning and building mm. relationships from the start. So if one person does need to take You know, a little time away because someone in their family gets sick or they get sick that they already have a community still and it's not going to disrupt those relationships. Because the number one thing we heard and learned this spring was that in the situations where uh, remote learning worked best is when there were strong relationships that were built already. Um, And those strengths strengthening of relationships with families grew and that was a silver lining too in the spring. That's interesting. Um, and so, so that's why we said, you know, instead of having one teacher responsible for it in person and remote by themselves, let's bring teams together. Let's work smarter, not just harder. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to that team approach that I I didn't even articulate them all. Um, but the other thing that we've said too is from the start is that, you know, if you invest in time to plan now, and have co-planning and you know getting everyone on the same page the year is going to go a lot better yeah and so it is actually better to have what i've said repeatedly is a delayed start than a disastrous start and right now we're very concerned we're going to have a disastrous start because we need to have a phased and reopening where communities of teachers and educators paraprofessionals everybody is able to come together and have professional development on so many different um, protocols, because again, we've never taught this way before.
0: Yeah.
1: What what do we do
0: with the kids though, if we keep pushing the start date?
1: Well, I think that during, you know, when we've said this in our phase and plan too, is that, even if we, because we have to put Maslow before Bloom, we need to build relationships first. And so while families are getting, I'm sorry, the educators are getting professional development, the next phase then is building relationships. And I think, you know, the district could easily provide, uh, you know, review work that if some folks wanted to start it and get ahead start on the review work, they could be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, while the teachers are focused on preparing for the school year and planning together. Um, and then also taking the time to do virtual home visits. And so I think we need to look at models like the parent teacher home visit project, uh, and and make sure that educators are trained to be able to do that. How many um, homes, homes
0: are I'm in sorry? The, How many home? What, how is fifty four thousand kids approximately in the city? So yeah. what, what is that like? Twenty five thousand homes, maybe more than that. Thirty thousand.
1: Uh, I'd say more than that. There are, you know, certainly there are families where there's multiple children in the home, yeah. but it, it is a lot of homes. Um, but if we can try to do it virtually and when it's safe and if there are folks who voluntarily wanted to do Mm -hmm. in-person, you know, home visits, but which really would be like outside in the house. Um, but it, it's got to be voluntary because everyone has a different – and again, that's why it's, it has got to be based on equity. Everyone has different needs right now. You yeah. know, some teachers have autoimmune conditions and are very high risk. Right. Right. Um, and others may feel more comfortable and don't live with anyone who's high risk or in our high risk themselves, um, which doesn't mean they can't still get sick, by the way. Yeah, no,
0: uh, absolutely. Do we, yeah. think, do, do we think we have good contact
1: information for every – child no. who's enrolled no. in the city? No, no. Yeah. And and the, honestly, that was a lot of the work that teachers were doing this spring. You know, teachers were asked to do so much and they went above and beyond because they were asked to be tech support. They were asked to be uh, curriculum writers starting from scratch. They were asked to be, uh, you know, social workers. Uh, they were asked to support supply materials. I mean, there was just so much being asked of our, our educators and they did rise up to the occasion the best they could, even when they were trying to balance their own family responsibilities too. Yeah. Um, but these are, again, are the things that we're trying to get ahead of this time for the fall. And- yeah. And, well, and, and I think your point
0: is also if, um, not to put words in your mouth, but th- what I'm understanding is that there, there's a certain segment of the student population where right now teaching is not the imperative that 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 making sure kids are well is the imperative and we will we will and then teaching can ensue and learning can ensue and i also you know i've had this conversation with a lot of educators and it it seems like learning loss can be overcome like if if kids are suffering from learning loss we need to identify it and we need to right. we we need to understand the magnitude of it but that's right what we re- what the, what we then need is an antidote to it. We need like very well run programs to make sure that no student does get left behind because of this crisis. That eventually we will be in some sort of steady state. We will understand how to use technology. We will understand what's what in person and safe means, and and we should be able to then deploy a set of strategies to to bring kids back out of learning loss. Is, is
1: that fair? You, I mean, you're an educator. What, what no, do you think? I, no, that's exactly right. That, that was kind of where, where I was getting at is that, you know, people were like, there there's learning loss, there's learning loss. We're like, yes, but we are we are literally in some of our, our situations trying to get the right address because we haven't heard from the student in weeks, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and that takes a lot of time. Right. And so that's what I meant it was very overwhelming for so many educators because they were being asked to do everything. Um and, and and meanwhile we we don't even have the correct addresses for a lot of our students and and oftentimes they're moving a lot as well. Right. Yeah, that absolutely. So
0: so and tell me a little bit I don't know if you've if you've delved in this so deeply but I was I was kind of going through the um, proposal at one point just highlighting everything that seemed like an incremental cost. Do you have, like, if, if everything remains steady state and BPS doesn't reallocate funding in any way, how much incremental cost do you think is in your proposal in terms of, you know, I because I think you need many more substitutes, many more reading specialists, PPE. (laughs) I think let's exclude building safety because I don't even know that we could put a price tag on that um, in terms of air handling and things like that. Mm -hmm. But for the
1: rest of it, do you you have some sort of number? We don't have a specific one. Uh, Again, I think we're trying to figure out what... you know. Some schools do need more than others. Yeah. And so it's hard to kind of just average it out because... You know, some of our school buildings, like the Lilla Frederick and the Elliott School, for example, they have better facilities. (laughs) So they may not need as much for that. Um, And and some of our schools have better staffing than not. And and that's something, you know, again, before the pandemic, we were already advocating that there be um, baseline funding as opposed to the current way things are funded because of the disparities in terms of which schools have adequate staffing or not.
0: And baseline funding would be some sort of calculation that would be...
1: an equity calculation is that? Yeah. yeah. So for example, you know, people were surprised why we we're advocating the last contract for a nurse in every school and didn't realize there wasn't a full-time nurse in every I school. Know, I know. Um, and so baseline funding is saying, Hey, you know, what are the things that every school should have? A nurse, a mental health, social worker, provider. And, and by the way, that doesn't exist right now. We, we try, we got more in the last contract, but we don't necessarily have a mental health professional in every single school. Right. Um, but we think there should be.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, And that's what the idea of baseline funding is, is so that there's more um, adequate and equitable staffing across our schools.
0: Right.
1: And and just really quickly, that was one of the major things we heard from this this spring and the focus groups and the collective bargaining committee members was social emotional health is by far a huge priority and concern. Um, Just the number of students who had changes in food, mood, and sleeping. Yeah. is not a good sign.
0: Yeah, talk talk a little bit about that food. I mean, food. Fifty four thousand kids. Everyone can is guaranteed two full meals and a snack every day. The, the, uh, many kids, good percentage of kids take advantage of that. Even more so in my way, cafe schools. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but we didn't hand out nearly as much food when kids left the buildings as we did when they were proximate to
1: the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Well, what we heard was a lot of students weren't eating and and it's oftentimes a sign of depression, mm. um, or weren't sleeping or, uh, you know, just had changes in mood and behavior. And this is where, you know, we hear very strongly, again, we're educators uh, about the need for young children to be able to socialize and for their social emotional health in particular, right. uh, because that socialization is how young children learn, actually. Mm. Um, and, and that is really important. Uh, and so we get it. But this Hybrid plan that currently is being proposed is not going to help that situation either in the most effective way possible. And why not? And the simultaneous teaching and learning. Yeah. We just think there's better ways to do this. Yeah. And so we are interested in, in for example, uh, you know, there are teachers who are willing to volunteer to come back if they get assurances about the facilities being upgraded and improved and that air ventilation, etc., has all been checked. Yeah. Um, we can't just take the verbal assurance we need to actually see what was done um, because of our experience with the district. Yeah. And and if that's the case, and even if it's not in that school building, so let's say a school building you know, is in such substandard sit- position or situation like the Jackson Man, right? Which they wanted to vacate already because it's one of the worst buildings in this the city. Right. Uh, then where are the places where we can still have pods of learning happening? You're still a Jackson Man student, but maybe you're... Um, I'm just making something up, but in am um, trying to think of something near the Jackson Man, but like in a Bunker Hill building that's not being used because yeah. they're going remote.
0: Well, and we own we own the city owns a lot of the Y buildings and the uh, Boys and Girls Club buildings, right? What I right.
1: Understand. So yeah. maybe right. So maybe those students in very small numbers and under safe health and uh, physical facility protocols, protocols yeah. that, right? They could do some kind of uh, pod where, again, they're still BPS students, but they're getting some enrichment and supplemental supports. And those are conversations we're willing to have and we want to have. And there are teachers who are interested in helping to figure that out. but what we can't have, again, is everyone being forced to go back into school buildings, even if we're teaching remotely, even on Wednesdays, which didn't make any sense to us, by the way, because the hybrid plan said A days, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, everyone's remote, and then Thursday, Fridays, it's the B group. Um, but that even on the Wednesdays, when it, the deep cleaning, quote unquote, is supposed to be happening, um, that teachers would have to be in the buildings, in their right. classrooms. Right. 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 That doesn't make any sense because why are we asking thousands of people to unnecessarily expose themselves and do something that they can do from home when they're supposed to be cleaning happening in the buildings so and the teachers are supposed to be teaching right like that's right yeah right right so and and there's yeah yes lots of questions
0: (laughs) so so how how's it going i i know i'm sure you probably can't comment on the negotiations very much but um how are you I'm, feeling about the start of school?
1: I'm not feeling very optimistic at the moment. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling pretty frustrated because it didn't have to be like this. Um, we're in August. I don't think people realize, too, that, you know, come August, teachers and administrators are already planning for the f- fall. Of course. And right now everyone's kind of in limbo and doesn't know what to plan for. Um, and what we said in the spring was, listen, we have time now to get it right for the fall, to get remote learning done so much better, and to actually figure out what are the ways we can safely uh, provide more supports for the families for which remote learning was not working. Right. Um, and we're just running out of time at this point. Yeah. It's August 11th. It, it, and it's just so frustrating because we had ideas. We, we are professionals. This is what we do. And You know, I don't know – sometimes I feel like it's almost like um, uh, truthfully a sexist thing where it's like, oh, like anyone can teach and are dismissive of all of the (laughs) extended graduate degrees (laughs) and education that we have to inform plans in a thoughtful way. Yeah. And and the only ones
0: who suffer there, I think, are the kids ultimately who are in some – progression of learning, right? Which is the ultimate goal of the academic right. institution right. is to teach kids and to make sure and to play its part in the health and wellness of, of the child. But all of that seems out the window right now with, right. Because, because of all the things that you're saying, because we're not, we're not thinking about kids as individuals and which ones of them we need to be working on at the most basic levels, make, meeting their needs, which of those who are ready to go and are hungry to learn, and we should be treating them that way. H- how we remap assets, both physical assets like buildings and, and the dollars, and, and our, our incredible teachers. Like how do, how do we use everyone that we employ,
1: mm-hmm. and, and how do
0: we attract new people? Because it, it this probably is a hands-on job. Yeah, You know, like, so we're just, we're not thinking about these as, as we're in a completely different paradigm and we do have a bunch of assets and we have a deeply needy, you know, or not even needy, just ready to go. Right. To, at whatever extent they're ready to go and ready to go. Maybe we need to find them, make sure they're safe yeah. and make sure they're technology connected and yeah. have someone to touch, you know, base with them. And, and you know, in, in other cases, it may be, you know the junior or senior who's like going to graduate in a year or two and wants to knock out, you know, a, another good year of learning. Um, yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's, it's I, I, you know, it's a difficult. I think it's a difficult position for anyone to be in who's, you know, in I any think way involved the
1: in, in the I, system. Yes, and I think you've hit something on the head too, which is that, you know, we are not trying to replicate what we were doing before. Right with remote and simultaneous instruction, I feel like maybe the hopscotch plan tries to do that because what was we were doing before wasn't working for everybody either. Right. And so we're, we're tr- really trying to do that. We don't want to go back to what it was before the pandemic either, because that was not sufficient either. Yeah, no, we have to use this to, to, right. And I- so there are ways that we could really be rethinking how we're meeting the needs of our students during this pandemic. Um, and then improve upon when we are going to go back in person, um, what we were doing before. Yeah. I hear you.
0: I I appreciate so much you being on this podcast and spending time, um, talking with us about this. I think people are going to be so excited to hear from you. Um, and to particularly, I don't know how many people have actually read the entire proposal, but it's very thoughtful and, um, and it, it is very student centered and, and teacher centered. And, um, the end of the day those are the two parts you need to make education um deeply successful and so thank you very much for spending time with us oh you're very welcome thank you for listening to my conversation with jessica tang president of the boston teachers union who is currently working with boston public schools to determine its reopening plan the next few weeks will bring us to the beginning of the 2021 school year and families continue to wait without a final plan confirmed. I appreciate Jessica's points about how this new school year needs to consider the needs of each child and the safety of all involved. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.